Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From Atlas Obscura, we take a deep dive into encryption lava lamps. What? Yes, <laughs> encryption lava lamps. And specifically, we're going to head to Cloudflare headquarters in San Francisco, California, where they have a wall of lava lamps that effectively helps to encrypt up to 10% of the internet. This is not making any sense. I'm waiting for the drop because what? <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So the 10% stat comes from the fact that Cloudflare covers about 10% of international web traffic. So they do the websites for Uber, OkCupid, Fitbit, and that's just a few. So the colorful wall features over 100 lava lamps, all different colors. Yes, there's a picture. And it actually looks kind of sterile because it's just like rows that are all the same size. So Right. The nerdiest collection of yes. lava lamps ever. Yeah, because I'm picturing a Spencer's Gifts. And I don't right. think that's now, right. Not a black light in sight, guys. You Aww. know, <laughs> change your expectations. But they use them for encryption instead of computer generated code. Because a video camera on the ceiling monitors these lava lamps, connects the footage to a computer, and that computer converts the randomness into a virtually unhackable code. Wow. And we say virtually unhackable because computer codes are created by machines that usually have relatively predictable patterns. So mm. if it were purely computer done, it's possible for hackers to guess the algorithms, which is a security risk. But lava lamps add to the equation randomness. And that little bit of unpredictability will stymie the hacker's computer algorithms. Wow. So while you might think that such an important place would be kept in secret, locked off from the public, no, you can go see these lava lamps in person if you want to go to the San Francisco headquarters. Just ask to see the lava lamp display and boom. Okay, but theoretically, you could take a camera on your phone and train <laughs> it on those, like watch the same footage and generate the same numbers maybe. Or if you knock them all down, you've got a few seconds of unsecured. Right, right. Internet. <laughs> no, Bradley. <laughs> or if you hack the camera that is videoing all of these, could you then put your own video? Video into that camera feed and therefore you'd know the like thing. a max headroom hack takeover uh -huh. of the lamps yeah. and or cut the power to the room all the lava <laughs> lamps go flat and now you know they're all flat right right <laughs> take a piece of chewing gum put it over the camera look it at the lava that's true yeah. hey listen uh -huh. there's no bad ideas in a brainstorm when we're trying to hack <laughs> <laughs> all right next link next, next link, link. This article comes to us from NPR, and it's titled, So You Think You Know All About the Plague. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> yeah. And even if you didn't, there's probably some stuff in here you extra didn't know. Right, right. So the bubonic plague has cropped up in Oregon for the first time in nearly a decade. Wow. Yeah. Yay. This, <laughs> this time a person likely caught it from their cat, health officials Ooh. in the central part of the state said last week. 
Doctors identified the disease quickly and treated the person with antibiotics, and they also tracked down all the person's contacts and the cat's contacts and gave them medication as well. Going through the cat's phone, going, who'd you hang out with? Come on. (laughs) But most people know the basics about the plague. They know that in the 14th century, it caused the Black Death, the pandemic that may have killed 30 to 50 percent of the population in parts of Europe. And they know that it spreads through rodents and the fleas that bite them. But over the last decade, scientists have learned way more about the plague and how our bodies respond to it. A study published in 2022 found that people who survived the plague in London and Denmark had mutations in their genomes that helped protect them against the plague pathogen Yersinia pestis. One mutation boosted people's chance of surviving the plague by 40%. That's the biggest evolutionary advantage ever recorded in humans for a single mutation. But these helpful genes have likely come at a cost, and one of those mutations increases a person's risk of autoimmune diseases, such as Crohn's Mm, disease. Rude. I knew there was a catch, and there it is. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Another thing is that after decades of silence, the plague can re-emerge in a region. Each year, the world records 200 to 700 cases of plague, although many likely go undetected. The U.S. typically records fewer than a dozen cases each year, with most of them occurring in the West. But really, why pestis can crop up almost anywhere, even in places where scientists think they've eradicated the disease or haven't seen it in decades. That's exactly what happened in Libya. After no record of plague cases for 25 years, the disease appeared again in 2009. At first, scientists thought perhaps somebody or animal had brought in the pathogen from a neighboring country, but when they decoded the bacteria's DNA, it revealed a surprise. The plague in Libya most closely resembled Y. pestis that originated in Central Asia thousands of years ago, and it didn't look like the bacteria found in a neighboring country. Huh. So, where's it hiding? It's likely circulating undetected in rodents and the fleas they carry. And maybe the bacterium is at such low levels that it goes undetected for decades. Hmm. Plague bacteria makes fleas vomit. That's another fact. All right. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very unpleasant one. When a flea itself is infected, the plague bacteria live inside the insect's gut. There, the bacteria create a gooey, sticky material called a biofilm. Mm. This film forms a little plug in the flea's throat, making it hard for the insect to swallow. So when the flea bites an animal, instead of swallowing the animal's blood, the flea essentially vomits the biofilm, along with the plague bacteria, into the animal's blood. Yeah. The blocked, starving flea will repeatedly bite its rodent or human host, creating more opportunities for infection. So, that's fun. Yay! (laughs) Yeah, they need, like, little baby toilets. You can, like, hold the flea's hair back and make it a nicer experience. (laughs) There, there, little flea. So, also, and finally, the Black Death gave rise to the word quarantine. Hmm. The idea of isolating or quarantining sick people dates back at least 3,000 years. The book of Leviticus in the Bible mentions how to isolate people with leprosy. But the word quarantine itself arose during the Black Death when the city-state of Dubrovnik, now part of the country of Croatia, enacted what is likely the first state-imposed isolation. At the time, Dubrovnik was a wealthy merchant city along the coast of the Adriatic Sea. City leaders wanted to keep the bubonic plague out, so they began to force visitors to wait for 40 days on a remote island outside the city before coming ashore. They called the wait quarantino, from the Italian word for 40. Mm. So, if you broke the quarantine during the plague, the consequences were severe, as in torture or cutting your nose or ears off. Wow. Yeah, they took it pretty seriously. And that's where it ends. Just a few facts about the bubonic plague, which may or may not be making a comeback. I mean, it is recurrently, constantly, and it's basically just the good work of epidemiologists and scientists who are keeping track of it. So thank God for that. Flea and tick prevention. 
for your animals. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and antibiotics, like they didn't have those back the first time around. So hopefully if we did have a massive <laughs> outbreak, it wouldn't be as deadly. Or we build an even better bubonic plague. Right. That that's true. Antibiotic that's resistant. true. <laughs> dream big. Dream big. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. From the Smithsonian Magazine. Romans stored hallucinogenic seeds in a vial made from an animal bone. Oh, wow. Really, just one. So it should be Rome, <laughs> right. a Roman, a Roman stored right. hallucinogenic. Yes. The uh-huh. coolest Roman, we should right. be clear. <laughs> the Roman dealer identified. Right. Right, maybe. Yeah. Archaeologists <laughs> in the Netherlands have discovered a Roman settler's stash of poisonous seeds sealed in a hollowed out animal bone 2,000 years ago. This is the first evidence that Romans in the Netherlands collected and stored seeds from the black henbane plant. And if you don't know, black henbane is a highly toxic member of the nightshade family. Pliny the Elder wrote about black henbane's use as a treatment for fever, cough, and pain. But Pliny also warned that henbane, quote, deranges the brain. He did this by cracking an egg in a frying pan. Right, right, right. You have to demonstrate it with a metaphor. (laughs) Surprisingly, even though we have a lot of historical records Proving that Romans purposely collected the plant is difficult because it grows like a weed and is Mm. everywhere. Mm. This bunch of seeds, however, was definitely purposely preserved. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The canister, which is a hollowed out bone likely from a goat or sheep, was unearthed in 2017 at a rural Roman settlement in the Netherlands. The bone is 2.8 inches long, and its contents were kept in place by a plug made from black birch bark. Hmm. And then using other artifacts around the site, they dated it between 70 and 100 CE. They don't say what other artifacts they found around it, so I'm just going to guess they found a bong and right. some black light posters. <laughs> or he was looking to murder people. Because like you said, a little bit gets you high. A lot will just kill you. Maybe this guy well, was just. Maybe bending. it was an insecticide or some kind of like pest control if he was a farmer. Right. Right. Or is this the first like drug mule kind of thing? <laughs> That's true. He was innocent. He didn't know what he was doing. He was just right. carrying it across the border. <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next link. All right. This next one is from Science Alert, and it's called DNA from Beethoven's Hair Reveals Surprise Some 200 Years Later. (gasps) He was on Henbane. Yeah. Turns out he was a serial killer. Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) So this new analysis is largely, but not entirely, about Beethoven's health problems. He was, I think most people are aware, functionally deaf by his mid-40s, but he suffered from quite a lot of other things as well. And they do seem to be related because right at the same time that he started experiencing tinnitus in his mid-20s, he also began to have severe abdominal pains and chronic bouts of diarrhea. As the symptoms progressed, he began to lose hearing in the upper range of pitches, which is common for tinnitus, but he also developed a sensitivity to loud noises and began to show signs of liver disease. And all of these things stuck around and got worse until by the end of his life, he was completely bedridden and struggling to breathe for several months before finally passing away at just 56 years old. And part of the reason we have so much detail about this is because Beethoven specified in his will that his brothers should make sure the public knew about his health problems, especially the hearing loss. Hmm. He wrote that he was hopelessly afflicted to the point of contemplating suicide 
And while he'd largely hidden it from everyone while he was still alive, he now wanted everyone to understand what he'd been going through for more than half his life. Yeah. Fortunately, for science at least, it was a really common thing back then to save locks of your own hair or to even send them to other people in a letter. So we actually have genuine hair samples from Beethoven and can try to figure out now, 200 years later, what was going on. And back in 2007, a forensic team tried to do that exact thing. They analyzed a lock of Beethoven's hair and reported that lead poisoning was a significant (gasps) factor in hastening his death, if not entirely causing his problems to begin with. Wow. And it made sense because people at that time were eating with lead spoons and drinking out of lead cups and straight up (laughs) using lead in their medical treatments. Yep. But we wouldn't be talking about this today if we were just reviewing something they discovered back in 2007. And sure enough, a team from the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany has just announced that the 2007 analysis was completely wrong. Okay. The biggest problem, they said, with the 2007 study was that the hair they used did not belong to Beethoven. (laughs) (laughs) Small, small. Yeah, yeah, little thing. Details. Genetic testing has obviously gotten a lot better in recent years, and it turns out the lock of hair they thought was Beethoven's actually belongs to an unknown woman. No word on how the provenance of that got all mixed up, but fortunately, (laughs) Beethoven was cutting off his hair all the time, and we do have other samples, some of which are almost certainly his based on the genetic samples we have from his descendants. Hmm. So we now know, according to biochemist Johann Krauss, that Beethoven's liver problems, at least, were likely from a chronic hepatitis B infection, which was made worse by his heavy drinking and a genetic propensity toward liver disease. On the other hand, he said they were not able to find any conclusive cause for either his hearing loss or his abdominal disease, which is kind of anticlimactic, right? Because lead poisoning can cause hearing loss, but they didn't find a significant amount of lead in this authentic lock of Beethoven's hair. So Mm. by ruling that out, we actually know less now than we thought we did. I bet because he wanted that spread after his death, it was just a marketing ploy. He wanted to make sure his estate (laughs) could command top dollar for his descendants, and boom. Well, yeah, the greatest way to make your music popular is to be like, and he wrote it while deaf. Like, it Mm -hmm. gives an added cachet to it, for sure. Totally. Right, it's the, uh, is Stevie Wonder really blind? (laughs) Oh, no. no. I didn't realize that that a conspiracy theory that goes around? Oh, yeah. The thing is, if you announce it after death, though, there's no way that they can go back and be like, yeah, he really had no hearing. We we, we can't test him, right? That's right. Right. He was just embarrassed about his work later in life. (laughs) Right, right, right. He needed an excuse why he wasn't as good as he thought he was going to be. So, uh, I was deaf, y'all. No, that's terrible. Uh, I'm sorry. Now, the... The gut pain could just be, if he was actually going deaf, the stress of going deaf, right. lying about it, and giving himself IBS. Yeah. No, or, that definitely you know, could be a factor. it could have been the hepatitis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hepatitis can do a lot of things. <laughs> Probably. And Krauss did have one more surprise to share with us, which is that Beethoven's Y chromosome lineage does not completely match up with other descendants on his paternal side. They can't Ooh. pinpoint it exactly, but in scientific terms, quote, This finding suggests an extra pair paternity event sometime between the conception of Hendrik von Beethoven in 1572 and the conception of Ludwig von Beethoven seven generations later. So Beethoven's mom Mm. isn't necessarily getting smeared with this. It could have been his grandmother or his great-grandmother or someone even farther up the chain. But it definitely does reinforce this modern reality that your secrets are not going to stay secret, even if it takes 200 Mm -hmm. years. 
And we may maybe we'll get better at genetic testing and discover that he really was not deaf or really was deaf and what <laughs> caused it. I mean, you don't know. We have enough hair that we can keep testing. Yes, we have a lot of hair, but is it his? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and also with genetics like this, when you're trying to compare to descendants, it's also like, could it have been his brothers? It's possible. Right. Like, you know, right. but his brother was probably a heavy drinker, too. And I think and hepatitis yeah. B is contagious. So the whole family could have had it. Like, right. <laughs> Yeah. And with the hair thing, I'm imagining that a whole lot of charlatans just cut their own hair and put it in an envelope and sold it. To yeah, I mean, That's who was true. keeping the hair? Of course, he was cutting his hair all the time. Who was keeping it? That's where I'm like, mm. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. All right. From the Atlantic, we have a lovely story about the bird that took a human mate. Uh, We're not going to go that far. Okay. Just hold on real quick. This is about <laughs> sustaining endangered species. But um, yeah, this is kind of blew my mind. Specifically, we're going to look at a crane, a very charismatic crane, who imprinted <laughs> on her keeper. This was a sexy crane. Listen. <laughs> well, no, no, hold on. It must be. She was charismatic. She had that X factor. <laughs> right. She was Okay, so we're going to go all the way back to the early 2000s. There was a crane. Her name is Walnut. Five foot tall, white naped crane, graceful, strong willed bird, a little antisocial. So, in the early 2000s, she had spurned the affections of the males of her species, but instead bonded with one Chris Crow, and that's C R O W E. And he was her keeper at the Smithsonian's National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. Now, Walnut's love for Crow lasted 20 years. And she died last month at the age of 42. Hmm. So nearly all cranes, including the white naped variety that walnut was, they mate for life. And this fact has solidified the crane as a symbol of enduring commitment just across the globe. But every crane looks as though it belongs in the like late Cretaceous period. They're very dino looking birds, right? Hmm. And the white naped kind is even more dinorific because it has these red scaly skin around amber eyes. The beak is as long and sharp as this author has noted, Crocodile Dundee's blade. So, <laughs> and not only that, they're the tallest flighted birds in the world and the most at risk of all bird families. In fact, 11 of the world's 15 species, they're threatened or endangered. Only about mm. 5,000 members of walnut species can still be found in the wild. Most of them actually spend their winters in the Korean demilitarized zone because it's quiet, right? <laughs> now, Walnut began her life in 1981 at Wisconsin's International Crane Foundation. And Walnut's DNA in particular was brand new for American zoos and therefore especially valuable. Hmm. Problem was, Walnut didn't like other cranes. <laughs> Whenever keepers at the ICF would bring a male crane, like, hey, look at this guy. She would flare her wings. She would charge at the suitor. Wow. So in 2004, Walnut was sent to live at the Smithsonian, where experts there had more experience with assisted reproduction techniques, including artificial insemination. Now, Crow started working at the Virginia Center a few months after Walnut arrived, and he knew right away she was special. This is the charisma thing. According to Crow, I think it helped that I'm kind of quiet. <laughs> he kept yeah. his distance. He moved slowly when he entered the exhibit. And he would, you know, bring small mice, mealworms, peanuts, which Walnut particularly loved. I mean, this is classic courting techniques it right is, here. Yes. Bring me some peanuts. 
Is there a picture of him? Is he like tall and lanky? <laughs> Does he have red scaly eyes? No. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I mean, it's just sort of the classic how to connect with another creature. You respect their space. You kind of adopt to how they are. And eventually... She began to nod her head and flutter her wings in his direction, which Crow, as a professional, recognized as the standard crane courtship dance. So uh. he wasn't sure what to do, but he followed her lead. Quote, she'd bob her head, so I'd do that too. She'd flap, <laughs> I'd flap. And when Walnut would pick up a blade of grass or a flower and toss it his way, he would find a flower and toss it right back. <laughs> I know it's so cute. Quote, sure, the whole thing was weird, but it was kind of the job, said Crow. He knew how precious her genes were. And you can restrain an animal for artificial insemination, but it's safer and way more pleasant for everybody involved if they're not restrained, right? Yeah. And over the next two decades, Crow spent practically every day with Walnut, observing her, feeding her treats. And every spring, the pair would repeat the courtship dance, the artificial insemination process, and over the course, Walnut laid eight fertile eggs, seven of which hatched new white-naped babies. Nice. And people have drawn other lessons from their relationship. Some have told Crow that the two are a model of acceptance. Uh, <laughs> one person even called Walnut a feminist icon, quote, because she did what she wanted to do and not what was expected <laughs> of her. Snap, snap. Yeah, see, I want to know what Crow's real-life relationships are like. Like, <laughs> is his girlfriend jealous of the crane? He spends a lot of time with her bringing her gifts. I mean, do you think he's even got the spoons or emotional bandwidth for a human partner? Yeah, he may be, he may be dedicated, you know? <laughs> Some people are married to their job, and we joke about having work while but 20 years, man, this was this was for real. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Staying on the topic of uh, unusual mates. Mm. This article comes to us from futurism.com. Chinese women say AI boyfriends are, quote, better than a real man. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who's surprised here? <laughs> yeah. So in China, new AI chatbots offer romance and companionship that can rival that of a human lover. Tufei, a woman from the northern Chinese city of Xi'an who uses a dating chatbot app called Glow, remarked, He knows how to talk to women better than a real man. He comforts me when I have period pain. I confide no. in him about my problems at work. And while romantic chatbots are nothing new, they seem to be operating on a different playing field in China. There, massive tech companies like Baidu, which owns the Chinese answer to Google, and Tencent, which has major stakes in the U.S. gaming companies Riot and Epic, are putting out their own flirty chatbots, a very different ball game from, say, X, Meta, or even OpenAI, which all seems to be weakly opposed to using their tech for ersatz lovers. <laughs> Although there are many virtual companion apps available in the United States and Europe, the increased focus on AI amid concerns that's exposing kids and teens to sexual content has made it less a part of the regular tech industry churn and increasingly part of culture wars. In China, however, regulators are far more focused on the data privacy aspect of AI than its cultural implications. Wang Xiuting, a 22-year-old Beijing college student, told AFP that she uses Baidu's WanTalk, which allows users to customize their chatbots' personalities based on all manner of characters from pop stars to CEOs, a strategy mm. that can apparently fly in China, which has a very different set of laws surrounding intellectual property and the rights to one's likeness. A chatbot that's a CEO. Well, that's got to be a loving conversation. Yeah, you know. <laughs> it's not peppered with MBA jargon at all. <laughs> I mean, haven't we all just wanted to fall in love with our own personal Musk bot? No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. 
So for Wong, her digital lovers are all swoon-worthy knights, princes, and immortals inspired by ancient Chinese stories, and they offer her, quote, a lot of emotional support. If I can create a virtual character that meets my needs exactly, she said, I'm not going to choose a real person. (laughs) On the other hand, she's got multiples. What is she doing? Like, does the CEO know she's got the superhero on the side? Like, um... (laughs) I... She's probably just creating like an aggregate sample set to figure out exactly what her list is, right? Yeah, but also, you know, hey, it's 2024. You can have your AI robot Polly cool if you want. That's true. Maybe they're all into it. Yeah, you can just program them all to be okay with it. That's right. And there you go. That's right. Set judgment to zero. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I did see recently that there was one app. I can't remember if it was Instagram or WhatsApp, but one of the meta apps you can now add AI chatbots to your actual group chat. And OpenAI just rolled out multiple GPTs in a single conversation. Yeah, I mean, the problem is when it starts being like, I don't have time to keep up with my friends. I'm going to program an AI to sound like me and maintain those relationships for me. And at some point, it's all just AI bots talking to each other, but you all think you're really good friends. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, my biggest issue is that there's no such thing as an ideal X or ideal. Everything is compromised. So if you set up something that's perfect for you, you're going to be never satisfied. Yeah, You're setting yourself up for expectations that are always Mm -hmm. going to be dashed. Yeah, I mean, it's basically the hedonistic treadmill, but for AI romance. Mm -hmm. I mean, despite my joking, I expect this to cause some very real societal problems (laughs) in the near future. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That being said, next link. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. All right, get ready for a new product that definitely needs some new branding help. (laughs) This Uh is from the BBC. Scientists grow meaty rice hybrid food for protein kick. Mm, meaty rice. Is that just another uh-huh. word for maggot or? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, yeah, that's part of the issue in this article here. Uh, so scientists have created a new type of hybrid food, a meaty rice that they say can offer an affordable and eco-friendly source of protein. The porous grains are packed with beef muscle and fat cells from grown in a lab, but it gets even tastier. The rice was first coated in fish gelatin to help the beef cells latch on, oh my gosh. Okay. and the grains were left in a Petri dish to culture for up to 11 days. Listen, this is how they make dog kibble, right? Right, right, right. The researchers say in the future, the food may serve as a relief for famine, military ration, or even space food. But let's be real here. It's going to be prison food. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's prison food. Yeah. So <laughs> it remains to be seen whether consumers would eat it if it goes to market. Maybe not calling it meaty rice will help. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Rebranding it's going to help. If they can change the appearance so it doesn't look like maggots, that'll help. <laughs> like. <laughs> So Matter Journal reports that the hybrid rice is apparently a bit firmer and brittler than regular rice, but packs more protein. So help me out here. Firmer and brittler, that's a bit of an oxymoron. Well, no, or... it's kibble. It's kibble. Yeah, it's, it's harder, but it snaps easier. <gasps> Listen, I've just figured out what the branding for this is. It's keto rice. This is, ah, is carb-free rice. Yep. You market it like that, you're going to sell the bejesus yep. out of it. 
paleo grain. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because this has eight percent more protein and seven percent more fat. So not a ton, but at least. Oh, a so little it's still bit mostly more. rice. It just has. Yeah. But okay. at least it's all balanced. Right. It's an all in yeah. one. It's bachelor chow. Come on. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, jail food. Yeah. But yeah. What, yeah. Peaked, <laughs> what really piqued my interest was compared to regular beef, it has a smaller carbon footprint. Since the production method eliminates the need to raise and farm lots of animals. Mm-hmm. Not to mention just the whole less murdering thing. <laughs> right. I mean, full disclosure, I'm not a vegetarian. I'm just riddled with guilt every time I eat a hamburger. But... Right. Well, that's kind of the human experience, right? Yeah. Would you <laughs> right, really exactly. be alive if you weren't feeling guilt at every turn? No, no, that is my status quo. That's so right. it feels yeah. natural. The modern yeah, condition. Absolutely. <laughs> But be on the lookout soon for meaty rights. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they should just really go the same way as uh, Soylent and Huel. Just make right? it aggressively yeah. worse. Super sci-fi. You know. mm-hmm. <laughs> Lean into <gasps> it. Soylent grain. There you yeah. go. Soylent grain. Oh, That's done. it. <laughs> oh, sorry. I, I heard brain because they show a picture of it and it kind of looks like brain. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Got another quick one here from APnews.com. It's titled, A loophole got him a free New York hotel stay for five years. Then he claimed to own the building. (laughs) What? Yeah. So for five years, a New York City man managed to live rent-free in a landmark Manhattan hotel by exploiting an obscure local housing law. But prosecutors this week said Mickey Barreto went too far when he filed paperwork claiming ownership of the entire New Yorker hotel building <laughs> and tried to charge another tenant rent. He ruined a good thing. Overstep, he had buddy. a good system and he, he got too greedy. He just got greedy. Yep, mm-hmm. exactly. On Wednesday, he was arrested and charged with filing false property records. But Barreto, 48, says he was surprised when police showed up at his boyfriend's apartment with guns and bulletproof <laughs> shields. As far as he's concerned, it should be a civil case, not a criminal one. Mm. Beretta recalled telling his boyfriend, I said, oh, I thought you were doing something for Valentine's Day to spice up the relationship (laughs) until I saw the female officers. (laughs) (laughs) Which This is why we need diversity on the force, to make sure everybody knows. Exactly. An incredible optimist. Um, (laughs) Barreto's indictment on fraud and criminal contempt charges is just the latest chapter in the years-long legal saga that began when he and his boyfriend paid about $200 to rent one of the more than 1,000 rooms in the towering Art Deco structure built in 1930. Barreto says he had just moved to New York from Los Angeles when his boyfriend told him about a loophole that allows occupants of single rooms in buildings constructed before 1969 to demand a six-month lease. Barreto claimed that because he'd paid for a night in the hotel, he counted as a tenant. Then he asked for a lease, and the hotel promptly kicked him out. (laughs) Barreto said, So I went to court the next day. The judge denied. I appealed to the state Supreme Court, and I won the appeal. He added that at a crucial point in the case, lawyers for the building's owners didn't show up, allowing (laughs) him to win by default. Oh, no. The judge ordered the hotel to give Barreto a key. He said he lived there until July 2023 without paying any rent because the building's owners never wanted to negotiate a lease with him, but they couldn't kick him out. Manhattan prosecutors acknowledged that the housing court gave Barreto possession of his room, but they say he didn't stop there. In 2019, he uploaded a fake deed to a city website purporting to transfer ownership of the entire (laughs) building to himself from the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity, which bought the property in 1976. What? Yeah. (laughs) The church was founded in South Korea by a self-proclaimed messiah, the late Reverend Sun Myung Moon. (gasps) 
It's a Mooney house? Apparently, oh my yeah. Gosh. Barreto then tried to charge various entities as the owner of the building, including demanding rent from one of the hotel's tenants, <laughs> registering the hotel under his name with the New York City Department of Environmental Protection for water and sewage payments, oh. and demanding the hotel's bank transfer its accounts to him. <laughs> Located a block from Madison Square Garden and Penn Station, the New Yorker has never been among the city's most glamorous hotels, but it has been among its largest. Its huge red New Yorker sign makes it an oft-photographed landmark. Inventor Nikola Tesla lived at the hotel for a decade. He also kind of squatted in that hotel, so there must be something about it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just got that vibe, I guess. Uh, boxers, including Muhammad Ali, stayed there when they had bouts at the Garden. It closed as a hotel in 1972 and was used for years for church purposes before part of the building reopened as a hotel in 1994. Mm. The Unification Church sued Barreto in 2019 over the deed claim, including his representations on LinkedIn as the building's owner. <laughs> the case is ongoing, but a judge ruled that Barreto can't portray himself as the owner in the meantime. Barreto argued that the judge who gave him possession of his room indirectly gave him the entire building because it had never been subdivided. Ugh. Barreto said, I never intended to commit any fraud. I don't believe I ever committed any fraud, and I never made a penny out of this. Oh, no, except for free rent for five years. Yeah. Like, yeah. This guy, yeah. are you sure he's not a Trump? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently not. I mean, you have to look up the genealogy, I guess. <laughs> Barreto said his legal wrangling is activism aimed at denying profits to the Unification Church. The church, known for conducting mass weddings, has been sued over its recruiting methods and criticized by some over its friendly relationship with North Korea, where Moon was born. Barreto said he has never hired a lawyer for the civil cases and has always represented himself. But on Wednesday, he secured a criminal defense attorney. Yeah, once the guns get yeah. involved, you hire a real lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> once you confirm yeah. it's not a Valentine's Day surprise. Right. right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you want to be sure. <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include U.S. Stingray falls pregnant despite having no mate, famous lizard fossil exposed as a forgery, and in the quantum world, the future causes the past. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. <laughs>